Heavenly Father, what, what a story of what we do, of, of why we're here. What a story of perseverance and, and prayer and passion and joy. And a fight against apathy and deadness. What an amazing story to start a passage today dealing with abundant life, dealing with the counterfeit gospel the world tries to offer without Jesus at the center, the things that look like they will fulfill us, but only Christ actually does. I pray that as we progress through today, Father, that you would be glorified in the story of joy and salvation, perseverance in salvation, to the point that every one of us would examine our hearts and our lives for apathy and make it our goal, make it our mission to eradicate it from our life. Because apathetic Christian is oxymoronic. It doesn't make sense. You can't be apathetic and be a follower of Christ. So I pray for our time here today that you would just be glorified. And all that we say and do, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I thought I'd at least get 10 minutes into my message. Good gosh. What an amazing story. I'm not going to apologize for for letting the, the, the spirit move me like that, but it is a little embarrassing. I'm 35, and I'm crying in front of you. All right, let's, let's try and whew, get it together. All right, quickly, two announcements before we jump into to our message today. Uh, today is the last day to, to sign up early for DPK camp, and what that means is if you sign up today, then you're going to get half of, it's going to cost half as much, and you'll get expedited check-in. If you, you can still sign up after today, but um, the price will go up, and you'll, you'll be in the regular check-in. So uh, make sure you do that today if you're interested in going. Another thing is the One Big Life group, which is uh, July 17, which is all of our individual groups going to come together, have one big meeting, and you want to make sure that you and your group plan to be a part of that. Um, so leaders, if, if you haven't been talking about that to your group, make sure you begin to, to mention that so they can put that on their calendar. Um, so, all right, let's go ahead and jump into today. Today we're talking about, uh, if you want to go ahead and turn to John 10, um, that wasn't coordinated. She used John 10. She was talking about what, out of all the messages they were sending to her, all those messages were blocked. The one message that came through was the message of John 10, 10, that Christ came that we may have life and have it abundantly. You can go ahead and turn to John 10. That's where we're going to be today, but we're talking to today about apathy and how living is greater than our apathy and our deadness. And I hope that, that this comes through crystal clear to you today. Because as believers, as followers of Christ, it, it, it does not make sense for Christians to be apathetic. There, there should be no apathy 
in our faith, in our walks with God. But yet we, we all go through times and struggles where we find ourselves in hard times, dry times, difficult times, times where we don't care. So let me define apathy for you since we'll be discussing it throughout the rest of today. Apathy is a lack of interest, enthusiasm, or concern. So not only does that mean that you are, you could, apathy reveals itself not in just ways where you are not excited about something, it also reveals its way in the negative side, which means you're not concerned about something. So there's, there's, there's two sides to look at this apathy in that I'm not excited about what's going on. That's apathy. But apathy also is, well, I don't, I'm not concerned with the dangers that exist either. And I think both of those reveal themselves in Christians who have no passion for what they're doing in their walk with God. They're not excited about what God's doing, but they're also not concerned about the deadness in their hearts. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So this is a particular story of, of interest to me because um, I had an experience when I was in high school. And at the time, if you had talked to me, I probably would have told you that that was when I became a believer. It wasn't. It was more of an emotional experience. It was a church camp where, where they played on emotions. And as you can see, I'm an emotional person. Um, I thought I became a believer. There was no discipleship. There was no follow-up. I tried to be a morally good person. But I didn't really become a believer until I was 20, 21. Um, and I immediately got plugged in with a campus ministry on, on VSU's campus. It was called Campus Outreach. And uh, I grew very quickly um, and became a leader in that ministry. And so I would begin to, to share my faith, and it wasn't like it was strategic. It was just natural. I began to talk to people about my faith and what God was doing in my life and my heart. And I would tell them about just the exciting adventure that of what it was to be a Christian, that I had gone down to live at the beach with a bunch of Christians and learn how to share my faith and learn how to say the Bible. And I was a housekeeper at a hotel. And there's a lot of stories, some funny, some just disgusting, that I could tell you of what my summer entailed serving people as a, as a maid at a, at a hotel. Then I come back, and the next summer I go, and I live in Africa for two, three months, and, and we travel South Africa sharing the gospel. And then I come back, and I go back to that same beach project where I'm now uh, in a team leader, helping coordinate activities. And, and I was just telling people, I would share the gospel, say, this is what it's like. It's, it's an adventure. It's exciting. It's fun. God will take you and do things in your life that you could never have imagined. He'll always be there to, to help you through what you're going through. It's not always easy, but it's an exciting adventure. And then I would talk to these people, and I would share my faith with them in that manner. And then I would take them to church. And the message that I was telling, the message the Scripture tells us of what it looks like to be a Christian, they didn't see it in church. They saw apathy and deadness and no vibrancy, no life, no enthusiasm. It was ritualistic. It was dry. It was doxology at 11 o'clock. Then prayer, then passage, then two songs, whatever. It was ritualistic, and it began to really eat at me. And then through a friend, I found out that there was this man, our pastor, David Rogers, who was planting a church and and we had conversed a little bit over the phone. And, and if he tells you the story, it's pretty humorous. But I, I met him after one of our meetings. And, and he describes after our meeting was over, like me seeing him, us making eye contact and me just running. And he, he, he describes it as like, 
debris of women and children and babies just flying all over the place. And I was running through them to get to him to tell him how excited I was about partnering with him in this vision and planting the church because I was tired of sharing my faith with people and having them come to church with me and them not seeing a passion, them seeing a church that was apathetic and dead and deteriorating and decayed, atrophied. It was, it was tough. It was hard. So that's why we're here today. That's what we're going to talk about today. So John 10, we're going to read verse 7 through 11, and then we're going to progress through. So if you will read with me in John 10. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So what we see about this passage, and we'll break it down, what we see about this passage is that he came so that we could have life and have it abundantly. He didn't come for you to live a life as a Christian of mediocrity, of okayness. How are you doing today? I'm okay. That's not what Christ died for, for you to be okay. He died so that you could have an abundant life, not an average life. That's what he came for, so that we could have an abundant life. And you see in this passage that this abundant life is only found through Jesus. It is only found through Christ. And that poses some problems to us because we see Scripture say that it's only through Christ. But we see the world bring up other options, other things that the world tries to qualify, quantify, define abundant life in every manner except which Scripture sets forth. Every manner of abundant life that the world offers will leave you empty. Go ask Renee. Look in your own life. Everything apart from Christ will leave you empty. So I want to show you just one example of, of how the world tries to define, quantify, and qualify abundant life apart from Christ. I'm a, I'm a teacher. I'm an educator. And in my undergraduate studies, in my master's studies, and now even my PhD studies, you come across this um, theory created by a guy named Abraham Maslow. And um, it does have a lot of correlation to education, but I want to show you just briefly what this looks like. So if we can put that graphic up. It's a pyramid, and, and the bottom level is it, it, it's progressive. It's, it's sequential. You, you have to have the physiological needs met, and then safety, then love, belonging, then esteem, then self-actualization. And as you move up this, this list, this is what the world would define as abundant life. This is exactly what the world says is a fulfilled life. As a believer in, in academia, studying education, I have to catch myself a lot because 
This is not abundant life. Because nowhere in this is there the message of Jesus Christ or the redemption of the gospel. It may be value, valuable in my instruction or pedagogy or whatever you want to talk about in academia, but this is not abundant life. And so I want to show you here is that the major difference is that this is individualistic. This is, it's your responsibility to have these things met. And at the very top, there's this self-actualization where you, once you've accomplished all this stuff, you have arrived. You've realized your personal potential, your self-fulfillment, and you've maximized your personal growth. Now this does, this, guys, is the gospel just without Jesus. So let's look at where we see this. Let's go back to John 10, verse 9. What you see here in verse 9 is this. Abundant life restores. An abundant life, life described in Scripture of Jesus Christ, of the gospel, in the gospel. Abundant life restores. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. So we see redemption. He will be saved. We see freedom. We have the freedom to come and go. We're not trapped. And we see that finding pasture is communication. There's this living, breathing relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. We can go back to that graphic. We see a lot of that portrayed here. In verse 10, abundant life provides us a purpose. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. Through Jesus Christ, we are empowered to have abundant life. We are, have a life that is fulfilled, that is secure, and personal growth, again, on this chart. This mirrors the gospel, this Maslow's hierarchy, it mirrors the gospel without the salvific effect. It cannot save you. But this is what the world puts forth because we're trying to, to mimic or make a synthetic gospel. But we refuse to acknowledge the actual gospel. This is synthetic, it's counterfeit. Not for instruction, not for education, but for abundant life. This, without Jesus, will not give you abundant life. It would leave you empty because it fundamentally is intrinsically centered. It is on the individual. The gospel is not on the individual. It is on Christ. And that's the major difference here. The third point, abundant life promises security, which you see on this chart. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. So in here we see Jesus is the shepherd. We are the sheep. He is or in order over us. He is to protect us. There is stability in this. There is love and belonging in this. So when you read through the gospel, just in John 10, you see Ecclesiastes 1.9, that there is nothing new under the sun. 
You see it come to fruition in that Jesus said it first, Scripture says it first, and then the world comes and tries to tell you, but there's another way. They tell you the same thing Scripture tells you, but they remove Jesus. They remove the salvific component of the gospel, leaving you essentially with nothingness, emptiness, apathy, deadness. An abundant life restores, it provides purpose, and it provides security, guys. These are the parameters of abundant life. This is what abundant life should look like in your life. Restoration, a purpose, and security. Guys, but too often we exchange this. We exchange this real abundant life for a synthetic abundant life. This counterfeit abundant life. And when we remove Christ from that equation, we are left empty and longing. So let's take, for example, I'm going to show you a couple of other scriptures. Revelation 2, verses 2 through 5. If you want to turn there, please do so. It will put it up on the screen as well. Revelation 2, 2 through 5. This is John talking to the church in Ephesus. He says this, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and are found to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but, but, I have this against you that you have abandoned your love you first had. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So we see John talking to this church in Ephesus. And we see in verses 2 and 3 that he's proud. He's saying, look, you're, you're actually doing, you're serving God. You're being obedient. You're doing your duty. But then he indicts them in verses 4, and he says, but, but where's your passion? You're doing your duty. You're striving. You're toiling. You're working. But there's no passion. There's deadness. Guys, as believers, we need to fight for our joy. We need to fight for it. We will go through times of apathy. We'll go through times of dryness. We'll go through times where we don't think that God is close. But he is. He can be. Why do we so quickly exchange the abundant life of Scripture for other things? So let's look at this passage and break this down a little further. Because for non-believers, there's the apathy of, I'm not concerned about my spiritual, my eternal state. For believers, the apathy looks more like, I'm a believer, so now I'm just going to chill. I'm just going to whatever. Just put it on the back burner, coast, if you will. And so let's look at apathy a little closer. When we experience seasons of apathy, I'm speaking to the professing believer at this time. 
Revelation 2.5 says, remember, here, believer, is how you fight through apathy. How do you fight through it? Here's how you do it. The first thing John says to them, he says, look, you have no joy. You have no passion. You may be doing works, but you're dead inside. You're doing it out of duty only. The first thing he says to do is remember. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. So reflect. Let's take a step back when we are feeling apathetic and let's dwell on when we became a believer, on the most rich time we've ever experienced as a believer and follower of Christ. Let's dwell on that. Let's remember where we've come from. The second thing John says is when we experience apathy, we need to repent because oftentimes apathy in the life of a believer, someone who is a genuine believer, and we're feeling distant, we're feeling apathetic, we're feeling lazy in our faith and our walk with God, it's because there's unconfessed or even cherished sin in our hearts. So you see here, next in Revelation 2, 5, he says, remember, and then he says, repent. Repent. One simple word, remember where you've fallen. Compare what you used to do to what you're doing now and repent of what is different. Get rid of what is different. Follow Christ. And thirdly, or excuse me, in, in line with repentance, I want to show you another passage. And this passage is, um, man, it's just so strong. It's in Psalm 51, verses 9 through 12. And if you're familiar with, with David and the Psalms, this is, the, this is a psalm of repentance that David composes and sings after his sin with Bathsheba. And I'd love, I wish I had time to go into that. But he basically does some, a, lot, a, a, a long list of really crappy things, really, really bad things. Um, and then Psalm 51 is his, is his repentance to God for these things. So I'm going to read you this passage because in order for us to have an attitude of joy, we have to, to continually, consistently repent of sin that's in our life. And so I want to read this passage to you. This is how David repents of his sin in Psalm 51, 9 through 12, he says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Guys, this, this is... This is in, in, incredibly encouraging, but also heartbreaking at the same time. David is a man who is described as being a man after God's own heart. This is probably one of the most famous characters in, in Scripture we can learn from, composing most of the Psalms. How did he get here to where he feels separated from God? He says, don't. Don't turn from me, God. Rejoice over me. Give me a renewed joy in my salvation. He feels dead inside. This is what unconfessed sin does in the heart of a believer. He feels dead. 
And he's crying out. He feels separated from God. He's saying, give me joy. I remember what it used to feel like, and it doesn't feel like that anymore. Give me joy. Give me a renewed spirit. I want to know you. I want to be with you, and, and, and something is wrong. He, this is such a great example for us to learn from because he doesn't, excuse me, he doesn't cower away from his sin. He doesn't try to sweep it under the rug and, and, and just not deal with it. He says, I'm sinful, and this is what's breaking my relationship, my communion with you. How do you fight for apathy? Just mimic David's prayer, but mean it. Don't just read it like they're dead words. Say what he says to God and mean it. We don't have to create a, just create the will all over again. This is a beautiful, perfectly articulated prayer of repentance. And if you mean it, it will work. This is what God wants to hear from us. I've sinned, I'm broken, I've messed up our relationship. Give me joy again, because sin has stolen my joy. He feels separated when he says, cast me not away. He recognizes that he's lost his joy when he says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. How do you fight through times of apathy, believer? Make repentance a continual act. If you, if you avoid repentance, guys, you're going to find yourself in apathy, and apathy is going to lead to deadness. That's what repentance is for, is bringing restoration. Non-believer, here today with your friend, your spouse, for whatever other reason than to worship God. Take heart in 1 John 1, 9 through 10. I'm speaking and you may be saying, but I don't have, I'm not sinful. I don't have that sin in my heart. 1 John 1, 9 through 10 says, if we say we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar. So this message of repentance is not just isolated to the person saying, I am a believer in Christ. This message of repentance is for everyone. to deal with the sin between you and God so that you can have the joy of salvation. For a believer, the renewed joy of salvation. For a non-believer, that you can experience it for the first time. And leave the apathy and deadness behind. And then thirdly, we experience apathy from Revelation. Two, when we experience apathy, we must recommit and rest in him. So recommit and rest. That passage again says, remember, remember where you have fallen from. Repent. And then do the works. You did it first. Yeah, that's simple. You want to fight for apathy? Remember what you used to look like when you had joy. Repent of what you do different and then do what you used to do. That's how you fight through apathy. That's how you make God preeminent in your walk. That's how you make, you make him preeminent in you. Remember, repent, and then recommit. Guys, sometimes recommitting can be a challenge because we're, we're just so busy. There's a, a principle, um, PLE, like a rule, um, it's called Pareto's Principle, and if anybody's ever uh, 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 in economics 
Um, basically, what this means is this is the 80-20 rule. You've probably heard that said before. Um, in churches, it looks like this. 80% of the people are doing 20% of the work. And then the remaining 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. And what that looks like is that 20%, sometimes they get burned out. And that apathy begins to take over because they, they begin to get tired because they're not rejoicing or returning to God. They're not finding their restoration in God. They're not being filled. They're just doing, 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 doing. Guys, if you want to have joy and you want to have abundant life, if you want to have life and have it abundantly, you must be continually connected to God. This is a challenge. I've, I've talked with some of the rest of your staff here. My quiet time, my personal time with God cannot be my preparation for life group. It cannot be my writing studies for all the other life groups. It cannot be my preparation for marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling. My time with God must be my time with God. And this is difficult to do. We, if we want to have abundant life, we cannot neglect meeting with him. And we have to have our time with God. This is challenging and often tiring. But when you go to God and you rest in Him, you rest in Him, you will find restoration, a renewed spirit, the same thing that David prays for. Rest in God. Mark talks about the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27 through 28, talks about the Sabbath. He says, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. He didn't make you to keep the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath to keep you rested, joyful, passionate, committed. He made the Sabbath. If you are not resting in God, then you're never going to have abundant life the way he's designed it. In order to rest in God, we must engage in him. Quiet time, prayer, reflection, make him a priority. We must, if we want to have abundant life and we want to rest in him, it requires engaging in service, which means so we don't get burned out. Guys, think about this. I didn't plan to say this, but I'm going to. That 80-20 rule, maybe you're in the 80% doing 20% of the work. You may be the reason the 20% are burned out and that they're struggling with apathy because they're having to do the work that as a believer, you should be doing. That may be hard to swallow but you may be playing a role in the apathy and, and, and deadness and burnt outness of some of your brothers and sisters in Christ because they're having to pick up the slack because the amount of work that has to go into church and ministry and service, it doesn't change. It's only going to grow. And so if you are not taking ownership in that, someone else is having to do it for you. And they may get burned out. Guys, let's, let's step up. 
There's so many places here for you to serve. Don't play a role, potential role, in somebody else's apathy. And thirdly, how do we rest in him? Engage in others. Guys, enjoy each other. Fellowship. I wish I could articulate how important my life group is to me. I could try. I'd probably get really emotional again. Um, so I'm going to not do that. But engaging in others, enjoy fellowship. Think about the way that we are created. Just, just think for a second. Don't write notes. Just think with me. We are created in God's image. I don't know of any person who professes faith in Christ who would argue that. We're created in God's image. Well, think about his image. Think about who he is, his nature, his character. He's three people in one. He is the epitome of intimacy. He is the epitome of fellowship. Christianity is not a lone ranger sport. Embrace each other. Love each other. Get strength from each other. Because if we're creating his image and he is the epitome of, it, of unity and fellowship and intimacy, then why do we try to do this by ourselves? Hebrews 10, 24, 25 says, and let us consider how to stir one another up toward love and good works. Engage in service. Let us not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. Engage in others but encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. You want to fight apathy? Embrace your brothers and sisters. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's sin. Bear each other's burdens. So somebody doesn't be, they're not overcome and they don't become and fall in the spirit of deadness and apathy. Let's play our role. Now, I want to, in closing, go back to a passage. We looked at Revelation 2 where John is talking to the church in Ephesians. And he says, hey, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing, 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 but you're not passionate. You're doing it out of duty and not desire or delight. And that is a problem. So we see the church in Ephesus being rebuked for their lack of passion. I want to rewind 31, a little over 31 years. Let's go back 30 years. Let's just round it up. 30 years. Let's go backwards. And I want to read you a passage of what the Apostle Paul was saying about that same church in Ephesus. Ephesians 1, 15 through 16. This is Paul speaking to the same church that's being rebuked in Revelation. He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord and your love Toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you always in my prayers. So here is Paul writing the church, saying, look, the, your love, I'm hearing about it. People are talking about it. People are talking about your love and your passion and the joy you have for Christ. It's a topic of conversation. I have heard about it. This was before cell phones and Twitter and Snapchat. This was not an easy thing for Paul to have heard about the love that this church had. Letters took a long, long time. And mostly it was just by word of mouth. 
People are traveling by ship. And, and just, I mean, it took a long time. So Paul's saying people are talking about your love for Christ and your joy and your passion for salvation. And it makes me be thankful for you and it pushes me. So my question to you is this. What happened to this church? People are talking about their love and their passion and their joy and their excitement and their service. It's the topic of conversation. And 30 years later, John says, yeah, you're still doing stuff, but you're dead. There's no joy. There's no passion. What has happened to this church? This, brothers and sisters, let it be a warning to you as an individual, to you as a family, and to us as a corporate body, that if we neglect our walk with Christ, we will find ourselves in apathy. If we neglect fellowship, we will find ourselves in apathy. If we neglect repentance, we will find ourselves in apathy. And the body will begin to atrophy and deteriorate and decay. I started with the story about me sharing my my faith and taking people to church and the message didn't match what the church looked like. Guys, I haven't had that problem since I started coming to Crosspoint. We are a church, praise God, of passion and vibrancy and joy. I hope you understand that that is how it should be. But sadly, that is how not many churches have that. Rejoice in what God has provided for us here. Take that out and share the gospel. Bring them back so they can see the gospel matches what we believe. And just watch God do great stuff. So the last passage we're going to read, we're going to close with this passage. Um, I'm going to pray for us. And I'm going to pray through a psalm, Psalm 13. I'm going to pray through this. So I want us to, you pray, and I want you to know this altar is open. We'll have pastors down front. We'll have counselors down front. Grab your neighbor. Guys, if there's apathy or deadness, deal with it. Don't leave here with it. Deal with this. Pray that God will restore to you the joy of your salvation. Fight for your joy. Let him work for you. So I'm going to pray, and then we'll close. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have the sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my face, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God, that this would be our prayer. 
that we would pray that you would light up our face again. Give us joy again. That we would not be apathetic or dead, but that we would be men and women who love you and whose love is openly seen. That our enemies wouldn't rejoice that we're saved because they don't think our salvation has any power. That we would live in resurrection power. That our enemies would see our salvation and tremble at your power. Because we are living the life of abundance, not possessions, not prosperity, but abundant life. Father, you are amazing. I pray that our attitudes and hearts toward you would reflect just how amazing you are. We ask these things in Christ's name.